As our text begins this morning, we read that Joseph filled his brother's sacks with food and for the second time returns the money that they brought to pay for it. But then he does one extra thing. He has his steward take his cup and place it in Benjamin's sack. And when his brothers are sent away, he sends the steward to accuse them of stealing it. Now the scene unfolds perfectly because the steward does exactly as Joseph instructs him. And they're defensive when they're accused. They quickly remind the steward that they brought back the money that they had taken to pay for the grain the first time. And they're so offended by what they believe to be a false accusation that they end up over-promising. They're so confident that they're innocent that they promise whoever has the cup should be executed while the rest of them promise to become Joseph's servants. But the steward changes the punishment. He says the one with the cup will be taken to be a servant and the rest will be sent away as innocent men. And what happens? Well, the cup is found and of all places, it's found in Benjamin's bag. Now it's hard to understate the power of this moment we have to think about the sequence of events that's unfolded. Because first they had to abandon Simeon and return home without one of their brothers. And then they were given the obligation, right, to bring Benjamin back to Egypt in order to have Simeon freed. And in the time that's passed, they managed to persuade Jacob to allow Benjamin to go with them, saying that they would keep him safe. They've returned the money that they originally brought, and they've left with all of their brothers and with new food to bring home. Imagine how these guys are feeling. They have to be feeling good about themselves. They've done exactly what they promised their dad they would do. And yet they've returned the money and they're coming back with the goods, their food and their brothers. And what happens? The cup is found and it's found with Benjamin. The prized son after everything that's happened is going to be taken away from them. And it's their own words that have sealed his fate. Their bold defense, their certainty of their innocence has resulted in them actually sealing the fate of their youngest brother. And as these events unfold, they're being forced to relive the moment from over 20 years ago when they got rid of Joseph with one major difference. Think back to the beginning of this family saga in chapter 37 when they first sell Joseph into slavery, right? They take his robe. They take it off of him, right? They rip it. They dip it in animal blood and they bring it back to their father, Jacob, torn and tattered, right? And they use it as evidence for Joseph's unfortunate fate. And what is Jacob's response? It says, Jacob tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and mourned his son for many days. There the brothers coldly brought planted evidence to convince their dad of a crime they wanted him to believe that they were innocent of. It's cold and it's calculating and everything that they're doing is motivated by self-interest. But fast forward to our passage this morning and look at what the text says. It says, then they tore their clothes and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. Unlike the time they got rid of Joseph, now his brothers are experiencing firsthand what their dad Jacob had experienced decades earlier. They finally know what he was feeling. And they simultaneously know that it was them who caused him to experience that pain. They're physically and emotionally entering into his loss and they realize that they're gonna lose Benjamin. And in doing so, for the first time in their entire life, they're experiencing the true weight of their guilt. 
Now, two weeks ago, I spent some time talking about the existential problem of guilt, right? The fact that our culture experiences it in more increasing amounts than less. I talked about the weight of it and the pain of it, but I didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about its value. Well, our passage this morning displays the importance of guilt in our lives. And what is its value? Well, when we experience guilt, just for a moment, we're able to see the truth about our hearts and about our minds. The driving narrative of our culture is that people are inherently good, that we're capable of doing great things. And sure, we're capable of doing great things, but that's in spite of our hearts, not because of them. If you watch the news on an even semi-regular basis, you can't help but be constantly confronted with just how broken we are. This week, it's George Floyd and the Minneapolis police. But the danger in following our news stories is our tendency to quickly separate ourselves from the things that we see. We say under our breath that we're different. We don't hate. Yet who among us would allow unfiltered access to our thoughts and unspoken words if we could have them be shared with the world? Who among us haven't found our desire for justice sometimes move into the area of hate, which Jesus says is the same as murder? Jacob's sons get a glimpse in this moment of their hearts and what they see breaks their spirit because they see that deep down they aren't good. They see that deep down they aren't righteous. They see that they were capable of doing something that could break their own father's heart. We often talk about how we daily offend God, right? We, that he's infinite and holy and perfect and that we constantly fall short of his commands. But unfortunately for so many of us, that remains so abstract that it doesn't actually grip our hearts. We kind of brush it aside saying we can't even wrap our heads around that kind of holiness. Or we don't even spend the time reading scripture trying to learn more about God's character. But God even has a solution to the time we don't spend contemplating his goodness. He lets us confront our guilt by how we treat each other by how we treat people made in his image. When we're made to see our hearts and our thoughts towards one another, God lays bare our hearts so that we can see that we actually are guilty. We have real darkness inside of us and we're capable of doing really awful things to people made in the image of the creator of the universe. And if we're this guilty towards one another, then how much more guilty in our relation to God who is perfect and sinless. And when we experience this feeling, it's actually mercy from God because it's in these moments that we're aware that we're hopeless if we're left on our own. It's with the bad news that God shows us that we're in trouble if we're left alone to clear our names. In this season when we can sometimes feel discouraged and feel lost, it's the good news of the gospel that reminds us that no matter what happens, we know that in Christ, our guilt has been paid for. Because he paid for our sins on the cross, we've had our guilt taken away. And though this is a once and for all payment, we should never grow dull to this amazing truth. Jesus talks about what people who've been forgiven look like, and he says the one who's been forgiven much loves much. The one who has been forgiven is forever thankful for that forgiveness. In this season of so much anxiety, I pray that we can find real joy and rest in knowing that despite our guilt, 
we are fully and truly forgiven. And this also has implications for those that, people that we know who don't believe in Jesus. When you think about people in your lives that aren't Christians, how often does the issue of guilt play a role? Maybe they say, I don't believe I'm guilty of anything. I'm a good person. I try my best. So often we don't believe we've done anything significant wrong. We need to feel our guilt before we can ever know we need to be delivered from it. I don't know about you, but I have a list of people in my life who I pray for daily to come to faith in Christ. And in this season, I felt the weight of that desire increase. I've heard from so many friends and family, right, reminding me to tell the people in our lives every day that we love them, right, because tomorrow is not promised to any of us. And because of that, thinking of people that don't know Jesus has weighed heavy on my heart. But a crucial part of the work of the Holy Spirit that he does in a person's heart when they come to faith is letting them see their need to be saved. So in this season, would you be praying for at least one person in your life that doesn't know Jesus to come to the realization that they need him in the first place? So this morning's passage begins with the brothers fully experiencing the weight of their guilt in their hearts, but it doesn't end there. After the cup is discovered, the brothers head back to Joseph's house and their actions further reveal a transformation has taken place. It says in verse 14, they fell before him to the ground. As the brothers have felt convicted of their sin, their actions now match what they believe about themselves. As they stand before the man with the power to punish them and the power to forgive them, they fall down to the ground. They ask for mercy. They ask for forgiveness. And they do that not only by what they do with their bodies, by what, by, by what they say. Judas speaks on behalf of them. And look at verse 16. He says, What shall we say to my Lord? Or what shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. We are my Lord's servants, both we and he also whose hand the cup has been found. This is a remarkable statement from Judah on so many levels. Because first we know that the brothers are not actually guilty of taking the cup. They're truly innocent of the crime they've been accused of. But he confesses that they're guilty anyway. And why? Because Judah knows that before God they're guilty. Maybe not of this crime, but of what they had done to Joseph and they never admitted to. And in this turn of events, Judah sees God meeting out justice for their unconfessed sins. And the fact that the circumstances are so similar only makes it more clear to them that God is at the center of this turn of events. And the experience, the realization of their guilt leads them through Judah to confess their guilt aloud, to own it. And this is so important. It's so important to make known what has been revealed to our hearts. Confession is vital. It's one of the things God enables us to do through his spirit when we're convinced of our guilt. It's one of the marks of our belief in God that we not only feel that we're guilty, but we confess it. Too often people see Christians as people who are self-righteous, people who look down on others and judge them when they do something wrong. Christians are people who never make mistakes or they're hypocrites constantly calling out others while ignoring their own sins. But it should be the opposite. We should be aware of the times that we're guilty and not be ashamed to share it. We should know that we're a mess and be open with others about the truth because it's not about us, it's about God. When we're honest with our guilt, when we confess, it's powerful to the watching world. 
last week it was announced that Lori Loughlin and Massimo would finally plead guilty for cheating to get their daughters into USC. And given the prolonged battle, what we know is that they seem to have exhausted every possibility of avoiding a trial, and they realized that they had no choice. And given COVID, they also know they're unlikely to serve any jail time. Time will tell how the public receives this situation, but my guess is that Felicity Huffman, who is also involved with the scandal um, and admitted it, will actually serve better over time. She wrote before the judge when she was convicted, she said, I'm pleading guilty to the charge brought against me by the United States Office of Attorney. I'm in full acceptance of my guilt and with deep regret and shame over what I've done. I accept full responsibility for my reactions. I'm ashamed of the pain I've caused my daughter and my family and my colleagues. I want to apologize to them and to every student who worked hard every day to get into college. Putting words to the truth about ourselves is powerful and people watch and see that. As believers who have been forgiven in Christ, we should be quick to share the truth about ourselves. For it's never about how good we are, but about how good our God is who has forgiven us. If you're not a believer this morning and you experience that realization of your guilt, I encourage you this morning to confess that to God, to admit it to him and to ask the Spirit to give you faith in Jesus who clears you of your guilt. If you are a believer, the confession of sin still plays an important role in our relationship with God. When you experience and are convicted of your own guilt, what do you do? Do you recognize it or try to push it aside, hoping the feeling will go away? Do you make an excuse for the feeling and instead try to find a way of justify what you've done wrong? Or do you bring your guilt before God and share it with him? Do you confess your sin regularly to friends, to your children when you've sinned against them, to your coworkers? Confession of sin is not something we do once when we come to faith. No, God uses it every day of our lives to increase our dependence upon him, to help us see our need for Jesus and to more effectively battle our sins. John Piper says this about the importance of Christians confessing our guilt regularly. He says, At the death of Jesus, our sins are canceled, nailed to the cross, debt fully paid. Then he says, The Bible teaches that there are traits that God's people have that show that they're in fact God's people, truly born again, truly united to Jesus. And one of those things is how we deal with ongoing sin. He quotes Colossians, Put to death what is earthly in you. So one trait of those whose sins are fully paid for is that we make war on our sinning. But you can't do that if you don't admit. That is, if you don't confess. You have to confess your sins in order to make war on them. If you don't think you have any, you're not confessing. So confessing our sin is the agreement with God that we have sin and it must be fought. Do you have someone you regularly confess your sins to? If not, would you pray in the season that God would reveal a brother or a sister that you could be open with your struggles to? So we experience the brother's uh, guilt, and then we hear Judah confess their guilt before Joseph. But there's one last thing we would have to see from the text today. As Judah admits their guilt before Joseph, Joseph responds with the required punishment for the crime. Benjamin has to stay behind while the rest can go home. And as we see Joseph remind them of the punishment that was promised to them by his steward, we're confronted with the reality that we know to be true, but that we reject every day of our lives. Guilt demands punishment. Crimes demand justice. 
And I think we're often very comfortable with this when we feel we've been wronged. But when we're the ones who've done wrong, we squirm and fidget at the thought of receiving any form of punishment. We make excuses. We're just doing what was done to us. They did something to us first. That's the way my kids talk. She hit me. He took my toy first. And we're uncomfortable with receiving what we deserve. It's a huge part of why we never admit our guilt. Even when we know we're guilty, we decide we're going to determine what our punishment will be. And sometimes it's just us promising to try harder next time to never do it again, and then we do it again. And that's what's so striking about our passage. The brothers deserve punishment. Benjamin is required to stay in Egypt, and then something shocking happens. Punishment is interrupted. We see this powerful response from Judah, who steps forward, and he recounts what he spoke to Jacob about before they left. And in particular, he emphasizes the love Jacob has for Benjamin and the grief he experienced at losing Joseph. Look what he says. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he'll die. Judah knows that leaving Benjamin is going to destroy his father. And he's overwhelmed to even think about what that would be like to experience. And as we hear Judah speak of his father and brother this way, we see that he has changed. Because when we go all the way back to the beginning, Judah was ruthless. Remember, as his brothers contemplated killing Joseph, it was Judah who came up with a quick alternative. Look at what he said. What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Let's sell him and let our hand be upon him. In the moment, Judah was able to devise a get-some-money-quick scheme that involved selling his brother into slavery. Now that same man is devastated to think about the impact leaving Benjamin's going to have on his dad. So what does he do? He keeps the promise that he made to his father before they left for Egypt a second time. He says, Now therefore, let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. Judah bears the punishment that's intended for Benjamin. Though the cup has been found in Benjamin's bag, Judah asks that the judgment for the crime fall on his head. And again, this is an amazing transformation. Because if you remember all the way back to chapter 38, when we saw Judah's interactions with his wife and his children and his daughter-in-law, Tamar, we saw a man that was self-centered and self-serving. After his first son is born, he's not even around to name his second and third sons. He keeps his youngest child from marrying Tamar, though that was what the law required him to do. And despite his own sins, when there's suspicion that Tamar had gotten pregnant outside of marriage, he wants her to be burned. But the realization of his guilt with Tamar and the realization of his guilt with Joseph has made him humble. Judah's personal experience of grace has resulted in him demonstrating love, even if it comes at a great cost to himself. How has your experience of grace shaped your response to others' guilt? How has knowing that you've not been treated the way you deserve impacted the way you interact with others when they wrong you? You see, when we know the mercy we've received instead of the punishment we deserved, it should shape our attitude towards others. Do you find yourself to be more gentle and more loving towards others as a result of the love you've been shown? Who can you show grace and mercy towards who can you bear the punishment for in light of what God has done for you? Judah was willing and able to stand in as a substitute for Benjamin, 
But what he couldn't do was pay for Benjamin and his sins before a holy God. Judah's actions provide us with a picture of forgiveness that finds its ultimate expression in the love of God that shines forth through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You see, just as the brothers felt for the first time in today's passage, the pain they had caused their father, only Jesus knew firsthand as the second person of the Trinity, what his father felt towards his people in the wake of our sin against him. Jesus shared the love of his father towards us, his guilty people. And rather than tear his garments and mourn for us being lost to sin, he allowed them to be torn from him when he was nailed to the cross. Jesus bore our guilt for us so that our relationship with God would be restored. He's the only person who ever lived that had to experience personal guilt for something he didn't do wrong. He lived a perfect life. He fulfilled the law, even down to getting baptized, and he fulfilled the law for us. He never killed anyone. He never had hate in his heart for someone. He never committed adultery. He never stole or coveted. He loved his neighbor perfectly and he loved God perfectly too. And though he never had the experience, he, had, he never had experienced the feeling of guilt, he actually willingly chose to. Because as the crown of thorns was pressed onto his head and his scalp bled, and as he was hanging on the cross left to die, he felt the weight of all of our sins pressing down upon his body and he bore the guilt for us. And though he had no guilt to confess, he asked God to forgive us, willingly stepping in just like Judah did so many years before so that we could walk away free. He was our substitute bearing God's wrath in our place. And when he rose from the grave, he guaranteed that death and sin were defeated. And when he rose again, he gave his spirit to us so that we could not only experience our guilt and confess it and experience forgiveness, but that we might live with grace and compassion towards others. This is the good news we can't get used to hearing. This is the good news we can't get numb to. It's the only good news that will sustain us in this season because the gospel promises us the best future possible a future that not even a pandemic can change. A couple of weeks ago, I was driving with the kids in the minivan and I had NPR on and the AC was running. There was a lot of noise. Asher was snoring. And a doctor from the World Health Organization said that there might not ever be a cure for coronavirus. And as soon as that sound bite ended, I heard Merwin say really loud from the back seat, he's lying. Why did he say that? And I was, I was taken aback. I didn't even know she was listening or understanding and, and I said what do you mean and she said he said the virus is never going away and that's not true and I was shocked because I realized not only did she hear the report but she understood it so I tried to explain what he meant that the doctors were trying to find a cure that we don't know everything about it that there are diseases we can treat but that we can't cure and that through my rear view mirror I could see her face contort and she looked angry and I asked her how she was feeling. She said, I don't want to talk about it right now. And as we drove, her silence turned into a conversation about death. And she said, well, Dad, at least our family believes in God. So when we die, we're going to see them again. And I was so overwhelmed by what she was saying. Because though she doesn't fully understand the gospel yet, in that moment, she really captured one of the most precious outworkings of what God has done for us in Christ. The reality that because death has been defeated 
and our sins have been forgiven, the worst thing that can happen to us is not permanent. That if we trust in Christ, we'll be with him and his people forever. And for us in this season, that remains the best news that could ever be spoken.